You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Paul Jepson is course director for Oxford University's Master in Science in Biodiversity, Conservation, and Management. He's also a senior research fellow with the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. He's held senior research fellowships with the Environmental Change Institute and the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the said business school. Paul is also on the board of Rewilding Europe, whose aim is to create large rewilded landscapes in at least 10 different regions across Europe. Through his scientific publications and work at Oxford University, he's making an invaluable contribution to the development of rewilding as a conservation narrative in Europe. Today I talked with Paul about rewilding challenges and opportunities, starting with the challenge he's currently most excited about. If I was going to have to say what I'm most excited about in, um, you know, from a European perspective on rewilding is the challenge we've got where there's this growing interest in rewilding, both as a concept and as an approach, particularly among the new generation of conservation professionals. But actually, the number of rewilding initiatives and the number of opportunities for um, young people to get engaged is rather low. So I don't know whether I'm excited about this, but I'm excited that there's such demand uh, or demand and interest growing. But then it's also this, I suppose, this really interesting challenge is, you know, how can we scale up the initiatives, the rewilding initiatives, so that, um, you know, the younger generation of conservationists can get involved. I was just talking with Vance Russell and he was, we were talking about what people could do, people who might want to change careers, people who are maybe want to change a major or two uh, if they're in school, or people who want to retire in style and do something really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can come from this from a number of ways. So I think, um, you know, one of the things we're thinking quite a lot about in Europe is we call it making policy space for rewilding. So, you know, we have quite different traditions of conservation in, in Europe um, uh, to those you, you have um, in, in the US. Our conservation institutions, you know, they've been very strong. They've been very good at protecting the, the little nature we still have after these sort of millennia of um, human change um, on the landscape. But actually, they don't really support some of the um, some of the rewilding ideas and and the new interdisciplinary science which is uh, uh, associated with um, with rewilding. So I think one of our challenges is to um, create this more enabling policy environment. One of the things um, we aim to do in rewilding, or one of the things which is getting people excited, is reassembling the mega herbivore guilds of uh, of Europe. So just imagining that, you know, that in Europe, supposedly our wild bovid, the auroch, went extinct in 1624. We don't really know um, equids, ponies, as, as wild animals, but we do know that 12,000 years ago, Europe, um, you know, had a, a sort of grassland, you know, savannas, cold Serengeti-like uh, landscape. And also, um, all of our science is now showing that actually when we sort of um, split, you know, we domesticated part of the animals, 
uh, we wiped out a few and and other ones you know kept wild were remained wild when we did that we we lost an enormous amount of uh, bioabundance and and biodiversity so one of our agenda is, is to um, and, and which is happening. I mean, it's, it's, it's being experimented with in the Netherlands, in Portugal now, in the Carpathian Mountains, is, is reassembling these large herbivore assemblies. And that's really interesting. So some of the animals are still there, like, um, you know, red deer and roe deer, for example. Uh, wild boar is still there in, in, in some uh, countries. Bison, we nearly wiped out after the Second World War. It was down to about 50, but they're now back up to 5,000, so we can bring that in. And then we've got the, um, you know, the bovids and the equids. So we, um, horses, uh, the ponies are quite easy to de-domesticate because they were never domesticated for, you know, for meat production or uh, as, as, as much as cows were. And then we've got... Um, uh, you know, bringing back the, the bovids in. And some of the there we're using old breeds, but also there's been a, a really good um, backbreeding program creating, it's called the Tauros, so an analogue of the extinct auroch, which, you know, to every extent and purposes, looks and acts like um, a, uh, an auroch. But when we're trying to reassemble these, we only know the, um, the tauros and ponies as domestic animals. So they're governed, by also, they're governed by animal husbandry law, by hazard law, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course, um, you know, the public are not, you, you know, then very, you know, an animal welfare sensitive public is not used to um, horses starving or corpses lying around or, you know, carcasses lying around, so, or, or whatever. So this challenge of, um, relaxing policy and if you like creating a new category of animals which is neither quite wild nor domesticated we're calling it kept wild that this is a a really important area um uh, for us in in sort of creating this policy space uh, for us and a second area which which we're really thinking about is the constraints on re- rewilding so you know you know if you imagine that most of europe was um we moved from, you know, sort of pre-industrial pastoral type agriculture, very rich nature and biodiversity and sort of these low intensity ways of farming to a more industrialized um, agriculture. And really, for a lot of the time, what we've been trying to conserve is those remnants of that, what do you want to call it, that sort of pastoral uh, countryside. And to do that, we, from our natural history traditions, we specified different types of habitat, you know, and a, you know, a grassland or particular grassland habitat had a particular um, mix of species in it, a particular woodland habitat had a mix of species with it. Or we um, assigned red list categories or endangerment categories to our species. So this was a, a, an approach to conservation which base, was based on composition. The beauty of that is it created really strong law. You can specify those habitat types in law. You can specify which species um, need recovering. And then you can, you know, you can use the law to stop those sites or species being damaged. And if they are damaged, you put in, you know, mitigation measures and so forth. So it had really strong law uh, in it. And it's been used very effectively to... um, uh, counteract the energy or the agricultural or road building uh, lobbies. But when we bring in rewilding in, and we're talking about, you know, 
restoring dynamic processes and a nature, new natures which are take inspiration from the past but are novel and future natures. It all creates this sense of flexibility and it you can't really specify it in law. So we're required, you know, if we if we if we designate a nature reserve, we're required by law to keep it in favourable condition. But that favourable condition is specified by you know classifications and surveys done in 1950s or 60s, 70s community ecology. So there's a tension here about how to how to bring in rewilding and this sort of bigger scale, more dynamic, more open-ended, um, more uh, novel uh, way of doing conservation within the current um, current legal frameworks. <laughs> and that's interesting because because also our conservation lobbies see to some extent it's changing a little bit now with with a new restoration agenda but they've seen rewilding as a um, as a policy risk that you know if we tell people nature's can be restored and they're flexible and dynamic then those lobbies against nature conservation might say great we like that sort of <laughs> we like that sort of conservation we can work with that if we damage sites they can be they can be recovered you know that sort of um, that sort of worry after so many things have been so altered for so long on a landscape and and then laws have been made since then during that time and, and yeah. until now the adjust, the readjustment the rewilding of law I think it is. I mean, I think, I don't know about you, but I think this is the lovely thing about rewilding, that it's starting to happen in different places, in different contexts. And we've got great stories to share with each other. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the, if you like, the de-domestication uh, angle of, of rewilding in Europe, I mean, personally, I, I find it absolutely fascinating because it, it's, um, I mean, it's extraordinary, the natures that kick back and come back in when we, when we do reassemble these skills. So, you know, if you're an ecologist, it's just like, wow, that was totally unexpected. I mean, I'm a bird watcher, so you know we're most birds. We're interested in rare things, and you know, or, or just these things which are oh, we're losing them. The, we're losing nightingale from Britain. Oh, you know that it sort of hurts. You know what I mean when you can't go out to your local site and see them. Or then there's other there's another species called blue throat, which you just wow. You know, I just wish I wish they were around, sort of thing. And now what we're finding is is that when we um, when we sort of restore natural grazing dynamics. First of all, nightingales just kick back because, and then also blue throats appear. So species which we thought were in sort of different rooms, they haven't appeared yet in the UK, but they've appeared in numbers in the Netherlands. And this, this is because it seems that these species, what they really specialise in is where you get that um, ecotone between grassland, bits of scrub, bits of reed, muddy little areas puddled up by the cattle. You know, those sort of really dynamic sort of, grazing uh, vegetation dynamics and then we sort of realized oh, we've been trying to manage for this for years and you just can't do it it's something which just comes out of the uh, out of the interaction so this de-domestication you can you can be surprised and excited if you're an ecologist I, I, I work on policy so this idea about how how we can create a um, a policy framework for instance the the cattle and horses in most of lowland Europe, they couldn't be truly de-domesticated and become wild because the landscapes are too complex. 
um, you know, the two, yeah. um, what do you call it, fragmented into roads and housing areas and, and so forth. So, you know, and you, there's a public liability thing. You can't have herds of the new Toros sort of wandering across a motorway or whatever. So they're always going to be, have to be kept to some extent uh, there and managed to some extent. And then there's, so that, there's this, as you say, this rewilding policy or rewilding law. But then there's also the the rewilding of um, of public sensibilities. You know, basically, most of the European public has been conditioned that we don't see death. We don't see death in the countryside. Or when we do, we see it in that fleeting glimpse with a roadkill and they go, oh, poor badger, you know, and then it's gone from your imagination. We're not seeing a carcass or death in, in, in nature as a, a sort of lingering, you know, type um, thing. But on the other hand, we'll pay a shed load of money to fly to Africa, and that's that's the spectacle, the the carcass and the vultures on it. Right. So there is a, you know, there is a, a a reorientation of it, and I think what we're learning here is you've got to be really sensitive to those sensibilities. So, you know, the Usvardas person, there was sort of a more um, in-your-face type of rewilding going along where the cattle were allowed to, to starve. This is 40 minutes outside Amsterdam with one of the strongest animal rights, animal welfare populations in Europe. And, it, you know, you're just irritating them or just, you know, uh, you know, winding them up for no reason. And it just causes, uh, or for no reason, and it just causes discord. So, um, you know, another model, a second-generation model, has developed in the Netherlands where the wild you know herbivores the, the, the cattle and horses they're monitored and when they're looking like the goat the ones which are looking like they're going to go out of condition and starve uh in february march are clocked and then they're fed and they're allowed to regain conditioning through to the spring and then they're harvested for um wild meat so you know sort of a more sort of premium high quality um uh, meat meat product and that maintains the grazing dynamics from year to year but of course it doesn't um it doesn't bring back the carcasses and scavenger ecology you can also picture a wolf listening to this right now going are you kidding me this is my this is my thing and you're (laughs) yeah so so this is where it all gets really exciting so we then start to think well there are areas where probably people would you know would wouldn't mind happen chancing on a um, you know areas which look more natural, which are bigger, which are maybe a little bit more you know what remote, so seem a bit more wild from the cities. So you know this is this is where policy is going. So there's 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 a new European project to see whether we can relax policy to. I mean, it's a big thing to allow carcasses to lie because of you know we've got all of these worries about TB and cattle or whatever. But if we could start designating areas where you know the wilded herds could actually you know, <laughs> sort of live, give birth and die, I think we would get some spectacular returns. I mean, we've already, as you may know, we've already got wolves um, moving throughout uh, Europe now. I think I think there's, you know, there may be 10 or so packs in Germany. There's two now in the Netherlands. Um, the vultures uh, would kick back quickly. This sort of opens real opportunities for, um, for, in- for new engagements with nature. Um, I don't know what, what it's like in the, the US, but nature photography is just taking off in Europe through you know, all what you can do with digital. And, and out of that, there's new wildlife hide businesses, there's new ways of gaining revenue from natural areas. And um, you know, if we had the sort of 
classic safari type um, experiences available in Europe, it, it could be good for everybody, really. When you're in a hurry, and you know, even if you're talking about some of these things being trees that have to grow for 200 years before they're ever considered old growth, and we're all going to be dead by the time this what we just planted is going to come to fruition and be a great carbon sink and all and habitat. But you still still feel an, a sense of urgency and some of the conversations that you find yourself having to slow down and have. It, yeah. How do you deal with that? Because you well, want to make the biggest impact you can in your lifetime. Most of the things we do are not even going to come to fruition in terms of a full circle rewilding effort until long after we're gone. Yeah, and, no, so you're on to some really good life. So what you're talking about is just the sort of, things which are in our mind. So I'm really interested in um, this idea about how do we bring about transformative change towards wilder natures? And, and it's really transformative change in, in our institutions. So these may be the cultural institutions, like how we think about nature, or the policy institutions, which or legal institutions, which I've just talked about. I have to say, I think the Dutch are they're absolutely leading the way. Um, and um, a lot of what I'm saying here is, is inspiration I've got from engaging with, with people like Wouter Helmer, Franz Scheppers um, uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. But their idea is that, I mean, basically, you can think about most societies, we don't like widespread change and we don't like the prospects of widespread change. But we do like funky experiments. Um, you know, architecture is good at this. You know, they, they, someone builds this outrageous architectural building and we all go, oh, God, that's a bit cool and talk about it. And suddenly you've got a shard in the London skyline or whatever. And they've taken this approach of, of pioneer projects where you, you find somewhere which looks good. You just start, begin. But as you begin, you start showing a vision of the future. And then as you begin, you're very open and you, you know, you're open to people from other walks of life coming in um, and, and being part of it. So it's much more of a sort of like um, a networked bottom up conservation where you start with a project, you start articulating a vision. And then, you know, in this one, the, the one I use, the Geldersee in the Netherlands to think about this, this was started by a small NGO, but actually the person who had the NGO, which is Wouter, also had a consultancy, so talked about it. And then, you know, progressive, a couple of progressive people in the local river management authority, they were saying, yeah, you know what, we need, to, we need to do things differently. Maybe this is a way, maybe we could start working with you to sort of, you know, just think about how we could do, try some new stuff. And then somebody from WWF came in and said, oh, you know what, actually we're trying to think of doing something different. Maybe we could work it with you. And then, you know, um, they did a, WWF was maybe, and, was linked up with a brick factory and the brick factories were saying, you know what, we need aggregates, but we, you know, everybody's against us at the moment. Maybe we could, you know, um, buy the land and dig out all the sill and restore the river dynamics. So it just sort of, just by starting and then, and then this pioneer project, of course, as you're doing it slowly over time, more and more people start coming down and have a look at what's going on, you know, getting interested in it. Then, you know, you do a release of beavers and you bring a, you know, a high-profile person in to do that. And it just sort of builds organically through, this, um, through these pioneer projects. And I think that's quite an interesting model of institutional change. So you're not sort of, you know, setting out a grand vision and saying, we're going to do this, which will, you know, there will always be people against it. You're just starting. 
and saying, hey, you know, we can have a go at this. What do you think? Do you want to join in and, and let it and and let it build up? Which and, is a crazy, and, it's a crazy uh, approach for people like you who are really into the policy stuff. And how are we going to manage all of this? How are we going to do all these things? And and then to shoot to the other end of the spectrum and really get a kick out of that, it might be what you're looking for. It sounds like it is. It, I can well, the, the beauty point. of it is that it, it interacts, uh, what we've learned is it interacts with policy. So actually, um, uh, you know, the policymakers and the politicians they start, you know, things come up where they need to show they're doing something and they need to show they're innovating and they start looking at these, um, you know, these pioneer projects and then start um, adjusting towards them, bringing the ideas in, into the policy. So it's, it's more of a, um, a, a, you know, a sensible way of change where, where you, you're trying things out. If they don't work, they don't happen. But if they're looking good, you can start adjusting your institutions and your policies um, to, to do them. And, you know, as I mentioned, with the, with the de-domestication, that's starting to now happen where uh, semi-wilded herds in these areas, um, they then built them up, they're then talking about how to manage these, and, and policy is saying, yeah, we should respond to this. I have to say, though, the other thing which is happening in, in Europe is, is the need for nature, but the need for novel thinking on solutions to social and environmental change, particularly climate change and the things which which come out of that. So, you know, this project I just talked about, one of the big drivers and in interest from policy was the River Rhine. With, with climate change, precipitation has increased, you're getting more extreme flood events. Uh, the flood events cause some pretty disastrous floodings. There needs to be a political response to that. This offers a, a political response to it, and actually it's offered a solution um, to, to it as well in terms of a, a way of managing river flows. I think these pioneer projects, when they work, it's when they're really linked to something which is, um, you know, is, is, a, is a policy challenge. Another one, for example, would be um, in Iberia, in Spain and Portugal, we've got an increasing problem. Well, actually, this will be very relevant to US uh, listeners with, with wildfires. And, and again, this is a sort of climate change response uh, in part, you know, hotter, drier summers, but it's also a social issue with um, rural depopulation, people moving to the cities, uh, traditional herding, shepherding, dying out, uh, scrub increasing, biomass increasing, hotter summers, more intense fires. And there, you know, this is a, an experiment coming in. We're thinking of, of rewilding, wilding with, you know, introducing uh, grazing um, and getting these sort of grazing mosaics going will just reduce the biomass in there and then reduce the intensity of wildfires. Um, so again, those sort of ways of framing rewilding in a, a nature-based solution way um, and, then, and then having experimental projects or these pine period projects to sort of test and, and show how that can work. This, this seems to be one of the ways we're gaining traction and, and you know, opening up the, the, the policy support for rewilding in Europe. It feels like the way you characterize it and the picture you drew um, on our very first podcast with Dave Foreman, he mm. kind of went all the way around the world and he just traced rewilding and how it's popping up in all kinds of different places and the way that it's kind of nice to hear how it all seems a bit organic and at the same time and at the right time the policy people will come in and and go okay this needs to be addressed and i totally agree i mean i i really enjoyed listening to dave's uh, podcast and, and thinking about uh, and you know i'm a geographer so I've, I've been looking at um 
geographies of rewilding. And, and the way the, the context sort of shapes so much what happens. So, you know, the Pioneer Project I was just talking about, that was very, you know, this, it, it just seems the Dutch, that's the way they do it. In the UK, we're totally different that we, um, you know, we, we, we've got sort of quite political rewilding where, you know, George Monbiot, his book, book Feral, fantastically, um, uh, what do you call it, compelling book for a particular political aspect, but really annoyed a whole lot of people and put their backs up. And we, you know, in, in Britain, we just, we just seem to want to argue with each other. <laughs> and I don't know what it is about our culture, but we just bicker with each other all the time. And, you know, then it takes ages to actually start off with anything or everybody's fearful to try a pioneer project because they just think they're going to get loads of people shouting at them. So it does, I think it does rather depend on, on just the culture and maybe the spirit of the nation at the moment and, and how confident a nation is feeling. Um, well, I was or, thinking, I was thinking too, that, um, you know, we're having a little bit of a problem over here in the United States. You might've heard about it, the current administration <laughs> and, and it is completely, I mean, they're getting ready to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the coastal plain, I mean, for oil. And we've fought for decades and decades to keep that protected. And, and, and I guess maybe a bit of hubris set in. We, I started thinking that there's no way. That is the crown jewel of America in terms of pristine and largeness and everything else. And, uh, and then I started thinking, okay, well, there's a lot of people feeling pretty powerless. You guys aren't having much better luck with your political world either. <laughs> and, and I feel like almost like rewilding has gotten to some point or has the potential to do so in a much bigger scale. It's got maybe the potential for more momentum um, in the direction of transcending policymakers and politics and politicians and and this slow moving machine that has really ground to a halt in many different political climates around the world everything everybody complains about everything being slow in government that was an old joke before it became like really cemented almost in terms of conservation in some areas we're feeling it here i know you feel it there sometimes as well and and this rewilding thing taking off from the ground and people just trying things with the aid of really great minds and scientific thinkers and conservation biologists and and people you know helping um these are not half cocked ideas or anything like that but they are kind of sort of transcending let's just go around the government in some instances and it's not that brash it's not that in your face about it but it is just in an innocent way it's like we've got to do something and we can't wait for these guys I, I think I think I'm with you on this. I mean, I think there's something interesting going on, and I think there's something which rewilding is is, is chiming with. And I, I think you probably put it only thing that I don't know. It just seems that um, the powers to be, whatever we want to call them, have just slightly lost it. Be it our politicians or our policymakers or the economic system or whatever. And, and you know, something I've I've written about is this this idea that in rewilding we're seeing. A new environmental narrative, and it, maybe this is even more a, a more a narrative which just people beyond rewilding uh, want. So rather than the, you know, things aren't good, we're moving to catastrophe, and you know, there's a whole load of people who are doing bad things in the middle, humans, fecundity or profligacy or greed or whatever, and we need government to do something about it. And we always find government lacking because they've got other agendas or whatever. I mean, it's quite an, uh, an anxious narrative to, to live your life in. 
And actually in rewilding, it seems that it's much more of, look, this is where we're at. It's not great. But actually, let's actually just just think differently. Let's just almost like just unsettle ourselves and, and, and start doing things and reassess and get going. And then we'll have a project we can all get involved in. And uh, we all being, you know, these sort of local uh, rewilding initiatives. And through that, we'll, we'll refine wellness both for ourselves and, and, and for nature. So it's a more, it seems that in rewilding or the way people tell rewilding stories, it's more of a, an empowering and, um, and hopeful narrative. And fundamentally, it's, it's, um, it's this, this narrative of, you know, we're talking about recovery, about restoration. That, that seems to me to be at the core of, you know, how the rewilding message seems, you know, but we, whether it's, um, you know, in the US where you, you know, you're connecting up cores, you know, you're reassembling, you're bringing walls back in, all of that sort of things. You know, in Europe, we're talking about the recovery of large herbivore populations and what have you. And recovery is quite a positive thing to be thinking about, I think, mm-hmm. at, in this current um, political um, uh, political situation. The fascinating thing here in the UK at the moment is, you know, as you all know, we've, my goodness, the, the whole Brexit thing at the moment is unbelievable that we could be, you know, we, we're planning to leave the European Union and all I, of that. I hadn't heard about that. What's that all about? <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> but, I mean, the amazing thing is that it, it looks like we've, we've spent two years getting a deal and our parliament isn't going to be able to make a decision on it. So we could yeah. crash out of it. Of course. I mean, so, all of that is really But that worrying. sucks the wind out of the room, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, if you're following that, and then you're also, you know, if you are on Twitter or wherever you get your, your information, you're seeing this dire, dire and very urgent message from... No, but here's the, here's the thing, though, for, for conservationists, is that there's all of that going on, but then at the same time, um, because we're planning to exit the European Union, we have to rethink our are environmental laws so the government has also decided and this is going through at the moment that it's uh, it's published a 25-year environmental white paper and it's about to announce an environmental bill and two things first of all if we leave the european union we're no longer bound to the common agricultural policy and that has been an absolute straitjacket both on conservation and rewilding so in a bizarre way, we might be able to innovate in conservation by coming out outside the European Union. Oh. I'll say absolutely up front, I'm a Remainer, and uh, I prefer us to be in it. But I think, you know, all of us conservationists, when we see an opportunity, <laughs> you've got to start taking right. it. Yeah. But then the other, the other really exciting thing is that um, Environmental Secretary has one, and the Prime Minister stated up front that this new environmental bill is going to be going beyond protection to include restoration and we might even have in the bill a legal requirement that we have to leave the environment in a better way than we found it so this suddenly brings restoration right to the front and then of course we've got this it also brings up a really big question who is we yeah, actually, are so our great great grandparents or their great? I mean, or well, us. so two, two, two <laughs> things. Here. So, so it's saying we, as a generation, as a you know, a parliament, as a society, are going to leave nature in a better way than we found it. Wow, that's pretty cool. But then, yeah. but then it opens all of these questions up of well, what are we restoring to? 
are we restoring to an 1850 bench line of you know pastoral nature can't do that are we going to so what are we restoring to and then there's another question of well who are we who are we restoring for are we restoring it for just for nature's sake or to for the benefit of nature and people and of course it needs to be in in our politics it needs to be that one and then there's questions on well who and how do we decide on on restoration so you can see where with that set of questions opening up where rewilding which is really offering some nice answers to those questions yeah. or seemingly offering some nice answers to those questions you can see where this is this is like wow and, and there's you know it's not surprising that there's so much interest in rewilding because um you know the governments if you like send out this signal it's saying look we're going to do restoration um you know it's come up with some rather standard things of let's plant some trees but there's all of this say right okay we can innovate with that idea and how can rewilding help help us uh go for it and there might be some major policy changes in our agricultural subsidies um which which could could enable it so it's a strange situation for conservationists where most of us you know believe in the european conservation movements the achievements which the um the more protective regime have have made and yet in uk we might be able to innovate um if we if, if brexit happens on saying that though the dutch are still innovating more than we are within the european union so yeah <laughs> Yeah. I can imagine the uh, there would be there would be someone screaming on Wall Street for the lack of sales of anti-anxiety medication just among conservationists <laughs> here if we we had some of those possibilities in, with our government that you guys that you just talked about because holy cow we're just holding on like it's somebody who doesn't like to be on a roller coaster well down that very first really steep drop and just holding on for dear life is really how we're doing it now. Um, well, I have to say, I think, I think, I think we feel we're holding on. I think we might be going over a precipice, but um, I think a lot of conservationists are saying, well, that's outside of our control, but what is in our control is to innovate right. conservation. And well, so let's, let's get back to that because that is really actually what, what this is all about is like where is it? I wanted to find out where is all of this really going and Dave kind of led the roadmap out he's like let's let's chase this down let's find out where this is going all over the world not just North America and and I've been thinking a lot about what you're talking about today but I had never talked to really anybody about it and you brought it up and I'm like okay this is interesting this is what I really wanted to hear is how these things are forming in this organic uh, transcendental, <laughs> just, we're going to just do it. People are hearing enough. And that's what I meant earlier is they get on Twitter or whatever, and they hear these dire things and they're ready to roll up their sleeves. They're ready to grab shovels and, and plant or whatever it is. And we had better be ready for this, you know, onslaught of people who are, who don't have the right, right background. They're not biologists or not ecologists. Yeah. You know, but we'd better be ready to put them to work because we've got them all in a in a lather. <laughs> They're all frothy and ready to go. And it sounds like it's just going to happen this way. It will still be. Well, would you like me to take you on my global tour of the seven versions of rewilding, which I've identified? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So I think the first thing to say here, and it, it, this is quite interesting, is that, um, you know, Dave and Reed and some people coined the phrase rewilding. 
But actually around the world, there has been um, innovative initiatives which capture many of the same principles of rewilding, which is about you know, the functional approach, restoring dynamic processes, reassembling trophic gills, and so forth. Um, but they weren't. They didn't. Partic- they didn't call themselves rewilding. The, the term rewilding has been been put on them, or they've adopted it because it's such a great word, basically. So, for instance, all of that stuff I was just been talking about in the Netherlands up until 2012, that was called nature development, and actually in policy, it's still called nature development there. So, I think what we're seeing is that the the term rewilding is now being applied to a suite of different ways of doing things, but which have a common set of principles or a consistent set of principles or characteristics. So if we start off that, um, you know, I, I, when I'm lecturing this, I, I sort of tend to refer to um, the North American model as the three C's model, just because that seems to be quite interesting. We've got the nature development model, which I've, just, I've been talking about more in, 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 this, uh, in this conversation. In Latin America, so we seem to have a, a version of rewilding, you know, thinking of the Iberia projects and so forth, which is more about species reintroductions, reintroducing species which haven't become extinct, but they've become extinct from a particular area and, and you know, rebuilding a, um, an assembly of species there. That's the sort of the species reintroduction form of rewilding is the one we're also doing in the UK at the moment, reintroducing beavers and pine martins. Then there's a taxon substitution version of rewilding, which is the one we see in the Oceanic Islands, where you're using a taxon replacement. You know, the giant tortoises have have gone extinct on one island, and you can bring in two species from another island. So you're substituting and and moving uh, things around. Then there's, and I think this is rewilding, but I think some people may disagree with me on this, but actually one of the most amazing re, um, restorations, um, wildlife restoration instances has happened in Southern Africa post-apartheid. So, you know, 1970, 1980s, you may know, um, South Africa and Namibia, the wildlife was decimated. I mean, it was, it was just awful. All the resistance armies, had, you know, eaten it and everything. And they used the wildlife economy model where... Um, basically wildlife, uh, people were given property of wildlife uh, on their lands and we got the conservancy models growing up in, um, uh, in Namibia and then we got the, the wildlife economies which is sort of like a private game reserve, game ranching models in southern Africa which have been hugely successful in you know, rebuilding bioabundance and actually in bringing peace and prosperity to, to rural uh, economies. So that's the sort of what I call the wildlife economy um, uh, model. And then we've got one which I can't quite get my head around yet, but I'll explain, try and explain it anyhow. Uh, the Australian rewilding model, where our colleagues in Australia, my goodness, they have a headache. So they've got their native wildlife, which is in a right mess. Uh, they've got introduced mesopredators, such as cats and dogs and, and everything, which are beyond you know we can't we can't control them and they're creating a sort of hybrid ecosystem model or experimenting with this this is work like by chris johnson where so a good example to talk this through you've got um bandicoots uh, species of bandicoots marsupial bandicoots which can only survive in zoos at the moment um because uh foxes introduced foxes will eat them 
what they're now doing, and this is a bit crazy, but then they've got sheep and guardian dogs, and they're finding that if they introduce sheep or, or set up sheep with guardian dogs in a particular area, the foxes relate to the guardian dogs as a, as a wolf, if you like, and in an areas which are with sheep and guardian dogs, the foxes um, either keep out of them or they move through them quickly and they won't hunt. So you can have your pandicoots reintroduced into these areas. Well, so I don't quite know what to call that, but I call it hybrid rewilding, where you're just working. I think this is a real principle of European re- of rewilding, is you just do what you can do with what you've got, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> idea. And then we've got one which um, is what I call it experimental uh, rewilding. And there's a few of these about, but the big one, which you may have heard of, is the Pleistocene Park in, um, in Siberia, led by the Zimovs. And th- this is um, nature-based solutions at a big scale. As you may know, the, the, the Arctic is warming faster than any other part of the world. Um, and in northeastern Siberia, you've got these super thick soils called Yodoma soils. They're about 40 metres thick. And they're made up of... They're, they're, They've got massive ice wedges um, going going down through them. So th- this is the permafrost, they're, per- they're, they're frosted soils. Mm-hmm. But with climate change, what we're getting is that as the Arctic warms, these soils are warming. So you have this active layer, it's called, which freezes and thaws every every summer. But as that's getting getting bigger, the ice wedges collapse and you get lakes forming. And then you get uh, carbon dioxide released from the thawing uh, permafrost and you get methane being released from these lakes. And it, it's just a nightmare, the, the amount of carbon which could be released there. But what the Zimovs realised, and uh, Sergei Zimov, um, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, was a permafrost scientist because the Soviet Union needed to build on permafrost. When you study these soils, you need to find exposures and, and these happen along rivers. When he looked at them, he was starting to think that, that they're just full of bones. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to go there in September with some colleagues, and you, you look at these, and there's just sort of like horse bones falling out the bottom of them, and there were mammoth bones, and, you know. And, and what they realised was that twelve to 14,000 years ago, these areas, what we now see as boreal forests and tundra, they were grasslands with mega herbivore, well, you know, big species assemblage, and mammoth steppes, they call them, with bison, cave lions, equids, and, and so forth. And it's now widely accepted that the collapse of those uh, megafauna assemblages happen from human, you know, human hunting uh, in them. And it seems when human hunting came in, it flipped the system from savannas, which are grassland, so they have thin snow on them and they reflect the sun's light in uh, the winter because they're white, so they're really cold, to a tundra system, which is darker because it's got trees on it and the trees capture snow in drifts and that forms an insulating layer on the permafrost. So now that's been all right for sort of 12,000 years, but now with, with uh, global warming, that's uh, becoming a real problem. So their idea, and sorry, a bit of a long story to get there, but their idea is could we restore the large herbivore assemblies and flip this system of tundra back into mammoth steppe without the mammoths? Um, and by doing that, 
cool the permafrost and keep that carbon uh, in the soil. Wow. So, you know, we, we, I mean, amazing. And when you think of it, at that level of rewilding. Yeah, I mean, that's a really big, that's terraforming. It sounds... Well, it's, it's, a, it's a massive idea. And it's interesting, again, how we... Th- so, you know, when we're talking about geoengineering to deal with climate change, you know, throw, putting particles into the air or yeah. massive things, all of that is actually talked about quite sensibly. And yet, actually, this idea might be the most sensible of the lot, but it just seems bonkers. Yeah, <laughs> just, well, maybe there's the newness of it because I hadn't really heard in anything, you know, about that project. And yeah, and so, so maybe as I get used to it, I'd be, uh, you know, but it does. I can see how that could come off. It's uh, if it's unfamiliar, there's one reaction, and then you get used to it. And how do you feel now? So in some ways, that, that's how I'm seeing the sort of these different geographies of rewilding, and they've all got common things in them. They're all about um, restoring abiotic and trophic dynamics, you know, uh, trophic upgrading, we might want to call about it. They're all about just reassessing what we're doing in nature conservation, about thinking innovatively, doing what we can within, you know, this sort of complex policy and political and social worlds we live. But they're all a bit sort of up for it as well, you know, ambitious, confident, exciting. I, I just think it's, it's great to see a conservation, whatever you want to call it, landscape of, of the world with all of these really interesting rewilding projects start, or initiatives and ways of thinking starting to emerge. I think one of the, the at least my takeaway here, one of my takeaways is the organic nature of rewilding. Yeah. Just the, the uh, from a people's standpoint, that people are ready to do stuff and have been, and they're joining people who have been doing things for quite a long time. Yeah. And um, but everybody in this fight is new to some part of it because absolutely we're, we're all out of our depth we're all learning i mean i, t- I talk about it we it's like everybody's decided to go on a, an un, on an uncertain journey but actually it's quite fun going on certain journeys yeah. together and working out how to do things as you as you go along and you know having that sense of sense of purpose and the other thing i love about rewilding is that it's reconnected science and practitioners again you know that we're it's all together again i mean maybe this has been the case in 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 um in the u.s always but i i think the you know in europe maybe and maybe in some parts um other parts of the world the sort of conservation science are sort of lifted off from the um uh from the ground as it were and and it is really nice sort of having that co-production and co-innovation going on between science practice and then different you know not just conservation practitioners but different uh, different sectors if you like we have to go beyond what we did to get here yeah. um, especially all the bad things that we did to get here but also what worked yesterday just doesn't work anymore we can't use our old tactics one of the things in the US that the only thing really stopping a, a wholesale destruction of everything we fought for with the wilderness act and and everything else is the court system. And if it wasn't, that's the only old school thing that's actually working to defend uh, many of the places that would otherwise be opened up in this four year period. And I see people coming together from, like you say, all over the different backgrounds and professions to do so. And I think that really does give us that sense of hope. Protect the best, restore the rest. Mm-hmm. So we've got to really respect and, um, and protect the really massive gains conservationists achieved you know through legislation and and so forth of protecting what we had 
during um, you know the last century. So we need to protect mm-hmm. those gains. We need to protect the the really powerful legislation and policy we had in place. But at the same time, we need to get on with this rewilding and restoration gender. So we're we're bringing in that. Uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're kicking on as it were and, and bringing in a, a, a new agenda. And then this is the questions of well, where do we do this? And again, I think we're we're finding in Europe that there's a lot of degraded land that we can restore and rewild, and we don't actually have to start doing it in the in you know the, the in the reserves which have been protected under the old you know under the established way of doing it, uh, particularly the small reserves. When when we get to the bigger areas in the Carpathians or whatever, I mean, rewilding and and, and the management you know goes one one in one, but. Um, you know, if I think in the UK where we've got beautiful hay meadows which have been uh, designated or, you know, woodlands full of bluebells and these carpets of bluebells, those are really beautiful things. If we rewilded those, the whole patterns of plants and so forth would change and we might lose that, that, that natural heritage uh, on it. So we have been quite careful to say that it's not about replacing the way we're doing conservation. It's just saying, why can't we have a a dual way of doing, mode way of doing conservation. We'll have a restoration agenda, which is rewilding, and we'll run that alongside our protective agenda uh, on it. And over time, the two will start interacting, and let's see what happens. Well, and you just take the cores and, and say everything else is a possible corridor. And the protected areas have always been the cores. For, for us, 99% of everything we talk about is starting out with some core protected area that is an island somewhere on the way, formerly on the way to somewhere else, safely for a jaguar to move up into the United States or something like that. And so we look then at what's stopping them now. Well, you know, obvious things, highways, other developments, things like that. Let's take that as it stands. But also there are these pieces of land. And then you start saying, well, who owns that? Are they amenable? Could they be and then we just start working it out as to, you know, here's the plan. I think it helps people when they're looking at maps, especially. It gets very confusing very quickly. Depending on the scale of the map, you're looking at usually a large piece, a large area. Yeah. And you start to get confused. And they're like, well, wait a minute. Okay, now I was excited, but now I'm confused. And I think the core corridor um, buffer zones and things like that has helped us to mitigate that fear of moving forward or, or that that deer in the headlights sort of feel of yeah I, I can see that yeah although interestingly in in western europe lowland western europe well western europe we're in almost the flip situation from you guys where most of our reserves we don't you know do we have core reserves you know for, for us a big nature reserve is 100 hectares Right, you know, right. these are little pocket reserves from from a U.S. point of view. So what we're actually finding now, as we're bringing rewilding in, is that the re you know because to sort of rewild with with herbivores, minimum you could eat, you can do it down to about two hundred fifty hectares. But you know we're going for, going for bigger areas. So actually, the as we're starting to bring in rewilding projects, these are starting to become the the bigger core areas in relation to these, yeah. you know, these heritage bits. So it's a bit of a flip system. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth podcast. Oh, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.